Welcome back to What Happens Next. This time, we'll be pondering what happens if we stop exploring our physical history. What would we lose? What have we got wrong about how we explore the past? How does understanding our deep history help us understand what it means to be human today? And how should this shape our future? Our experts help us get to the bottom of these big questions. Just don't mention Indiana Jones. Justin Adams is a paleontologist finding previously unknown facts about extinct species such as the Tasmanian tiger. He tells us why we need to keep looking for new information about who we once were and why that matters today. Uh, Hi, I'm Justin Adams and I am a comparative anatomist and paleontologist and medical anatomist and anatomy educator and, and I'm a bit of an academic platypus. You look at me and you wonder how I came to be. Justin Adams, welcome. Why do you think it is so important that we continue to explore human history in particular? I I think in one way, if we abandon the pursuit and the understanding of human history, we are divorcing ourselves further from the shared experience that we all have as humans, and it makes it harder to get to that level of empathy and altruism. It's a really important thing, I think, that across the sciences, we sometimes lose sight of, which is that there are these practical things that come out of it. And and some of it's the tangible, right? Like I find a fossil and that fossil demonstrates a thing and I can tell a scientific narrative around it. But at its core, it's a reminder about our common shared origin, our, our common shared history, and that it's been incredibly fragile for a really long period of time. Uh, and, and that fragility continues because what are we now looking at? We're, we're seeing the continued fragility of us as a biological organism on this planet and the things that we're all having to come together to try to respond to. What does your deep research into the, the deep history of humankind tell you about what it means to be human? It reinforces the fragility and the uniqueness of where we actually are. We're one of the only species that we're aware of, um, and, and obviously I don't want to get into a debate about animal intelligence, but we've obtained a level of self-awareness and sophistication as, as an organism that is seemingly singular and unique. And when we go extinct, We have no idea if there's going to be another organism that will inhabit this planet which will share that same level of self-awareness and intelligence. What do we do with it? Um, What we choose to do with it is not anything we're going to be judged by cosmically, but it is something that we have to look at and kind of consider in terms of right thoughts, right actions, you know, as organisms. So... I think in my studies, and and going back to your original question, which is, you know, what does this tell us about being human, is that it's it's sort of like the the parable of uh, for the want of a nail, the kingdom was lost. So that's a parable around the idea that small things can have giant consequences downstream. And for us, it is that all of these random events that took place in our evolutionary history could very much have gone a different direction. And so our existence as a species on this planet is predicated, it's based on these really 
unique events and features that took place in particular sequence and in response to certain events, and it could very much have just not happened. And, and so it's the preciousness of it all. Like, there did not need to be a reason why we're having this conversation right now. Uh, very much a whole sequence of events that occurred millions of years ago could have gone a completely different direction, and it need not have necessarily led to any of the things that we have. But since we have these things, it, it, it reinforces that specialness, and then we need to consider what we then do with that unique position that we now occupy and, and how responsible we're going to be with it as organisms. Do you think we are doing enough research into deep human history? <sighs> Collectively, I think the will is there, and certainly we are graduating enough students. <laughs> I mean, there are, there are more scientists now on the planet than there has ever been scientists on the planet. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. Like, we are an incredibly capable species in the sense of being able to investigate the world around us, including our own history. Um, I think the real challenge, though, that we're facing is that we are struggling with how we make that pursuit feasible. We're, we're struggling with how we encourage people to continue on being researchers because, you know, there was a time, we're, we're trying to adapt a system that never really was meant. It's almost like an organism that finds itself in a brand new environment. You know, for centuries, science was gentlemen scholars, you know, for all of the loaded sexist, you know, classist kind of problem that that invokes. You had, you know, 17th century landed gentry who were able to just think about whatever they wanted to and do whatever experiments they wanted to because they were freed from the confines of earning a living. And we're, we've tried to replicate that a bit within like a modern society where we free certain individuals, a proportion of our society to think, you know, to, to take their capabilities that they have as humans and, and to explore those and exploit those. And then a lot of those things end up giving us all sorts of side benefits and, and, and unintended benefits. And like then, what? Well, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like experimentation in the basic sciences leading to vaccines or cures or, you know, other kinds of research. I mean, basic science research ends up playing into all sorts of different outcomes um, within medicine, within biology, within engineering, you know, and, and so that discovery process, I think we all appreciate and acknowledge that there's this beauty to having, um, you know, the, the academy in its, I think, broadest sense, in its most progressive sense, its most open sense. But of course, that has to operate within the real world. And, and operating within the real world makes it challenging because as much as we want to encourage the next generation to come through and do some amazing things. And I, I have to shout out at this point to my lab students. Uh, my PhD students are some of the most brilliant people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. They are just truly inspiring people. Um, but it's a really uncertain future for them. And it's not just a COVID thing. It, mm. It's not just a proximate thing. It is a thing that we are facing in the scientific community. And we, we see that in threads around how we encourage women in STEM. We see that across how we encourage underrepresented populations in the sciences. But I think overall, one of the hugest challenges that we have is how do we move forward as a species doing this thing called science and have it adequately supported so that the next generations feel like it is a worthwhile pursuit to take on? Because if there aren't jobs in science, if there isn't work in science that pays your bills, we're losing 
a huge number of people that could otherwise be making those advances that make vaccines possible and cancer treatments possible. Again, it's about what we do with the knowledge we have. And unfortunately, budgets are budgets and, and, and finances are finances. And that ends up picking winners and losers. And unfortunately, the way that science is funded now, so few people end up getting funding. You can't tell me that 90% of the people who lose out in a grant round haven't written a good grant. Mm. You know, they are legitimate scientists. They're doing their best. But you can only do so much within the, the limitations of the way that we structure science and the academy now. And what do we as a species lose if, if we continue down that path? Right. Um, we, we lose a lot. <laughs> it's not just, I think, losing the fact that, you know, say like in fossil research, like there's this classic thing of you can go to a field site one year and there's nothing. You, you wander around and there's nothing in the exposures and, and that. And then the rains come in. And then the next year, they might be present. And then the year after that, they may have washed down into a, a river valley and disappeared forever. And we'll never locate them again. Um, there's, there's a discovery aspect within certain fields like the fields that I, I'm, I'm involved in where we know that if you don't time it properly, um, you can miss out on these kinds of opportunities. You know, the infamous Lucy find uh, from the 1970s with Don Johansson and his team. Um, tell, us, tell us about who Lucy was. Right. So, so Lucy made this, – this was I think the first – one of the first examples of someone in fossil human research other than say Louis Leakey back in the 50s uh, who had quite a bit of popularity. But Don Johansson really became sort of like the, uh, the scientist – Playboy type, like it was that interface between popular science and discovery and making science kind of sexy. For he was kind of Indiana Jones oh, in the way he was perceived. And he played. I've met Don a couple of times. Uh, not, 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 not bagging on him in any way, but he did have a penchant for the tan suits. Um, you know, <laughs> he 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 filled a really critical role within the scientific discipline. But Lucy was the discovery of a, a roughly 18-year-old female of a species we call Australopithecus afarensis, uh, and she was discovered based on the finding of a knee joint. So, so basically the, the part of your body that makes up the knee. And she was scattered across a wide surface area because progressively when she died, which occurred on, on a lake margin, and then she was trampled and buried in soil, uh, and she was largely preserved, so her whole body was fossilized, which is a relatively rare event um, within, within paleontology. Um, and I mean rare kind of with an asterisk next to it. But anyway, uh, you know, you end up with her in the fossil record and then she gets buried under sediment and sediment and sediment. And then water works its way through those sediments over time and it exposes these older deposits. She pops back up on the surface and then she starts getting scattered. And so she was found across a fairly large field because that's just part of the geological process that exposes fossils. But you could imagine during that season in Ethiopia that if they hadn't been looking at the right spot at the right time mm. or if they had come back a year later, she would have been lost forever. And she was a critical specimen in terms of really sinking home the, the at the time, one of the earliest known species of, of our evolutionary history 
really establishing a huge amount of knowledge uh, about body proportions and and being a, a female uh, at that time. And you know, it tied into a whole bunch of hypotheses about human behavior and socialization and the evolution of all those things. So, you know, there there are certain things that we know that if we don't strike you know, now or when we can, mm. there is the potential to lose information that we'll never gain back. Uh, and I and I think that if we don't make real key investments in the future of science, particularly now, we have the potential to lose a lot of scientific literacy. And and I think that's a real key part of this because it isn't just the scientists in the, you know, the quote ivory tower who are losing out when, um, you know, we we don't adequately invest in science as a discipline. And, and it's not just those ancillary things, medical technology and, and things that cure human diseases or deal with climate change or any of the rest of it. Uh, it's equally that um, we end up losing the broader message, which is essential for that next generation to hear, to have critical thinking skills, to understand the grounding of themselves as organisms on the planet, you know, all of that language that exists around scientific discovery, when it does make its way to everybody, it's being saturated in it. If you can be saturated in that kind of language and those kinds of exposures and experiences, it makes a huge difference as to how you view the world. We, we see that. We, we see that with the progressive changes and how we combat huge, gigantic issues like racism. You know, if, if you saturate people from an early age in understanding that these old institutions are horrific and horrible. It, it, it counters those kinds of messages that have existed from generation to generation have been passed over. So it's the same sort of thing with scientific literacy. If you, if you invest in people early and they understand the context of what they're living in and how they're all connected to each other as organisms, then you know that, that, that fosters that next generation to then go on and ask those really good questions or, or to move forward and to take advantage again of that innate capability that we have as a species. Justin Adams, thank you so much for your time today. Alastair Evans is a paleontologist who explains why we need to keep exploring our history if we want to understand our planet and ourselves. Let's hear from Alastair about why ongoing research is critical to conservation efforts and also why humans can't grow wings. Here's Alastair. I'm Alistair Evans. I'm an associate professor in biology and paleontology. Uh, I study how animals evolve, how they are built in an embryo, and how they function throughout the 500 million years of vertebrate history. Alistair Evans, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Why is it so important for us to continue to research, try to excavate animals and plants? Why do we still need to do that now? There is so much that we don't know about the history of life, uh, where our own species came from, where all the animals and plants in our current environment, how they evolved and how they lived their life up until now. Because the time that we see now is basically a tiny sliver of the entire history of the earth and of the universe. And making decisions on just what's happening now and what we see now is going to leave us really unprepared for what 
might be happening in the future. And so by looking at fossils, um, describing them, understanding about their biology, we really get a good sense of what has happened in the past and how animals have changed over millions of years or even thousands of years um, to be where they are now. Tell us about some of your favourite discoveries and what they've meant for our understanding of ourselves. I think recently some of the amazing things that we've discovered about ourselves is by looking at uh, the new fossils where we can extract DNA from hominin fossils. So being able to sequence the genome of modern humans. Obviously, mm. it was about 20 years ago that we did that. But now we can sequence the genomes of Neanderthals and Denisovans and presumably many other um, hominin species or um, strains or lineages, we don't really know what they were, to be able to see where we fit into the complex branching of human history and human evolution. Um, this old story of there being a very sequential linear pattern from the most recent common ancestor of chimpanzees and humans, a sort of simple linear progression, is so outdated because of the complexity of the number of species and their relationships means that human evolution was so much more interesting and nowhere near as predictable as we had thought. Uh, so by being able to look at the genome of Neanderthals, we can now see that um, what was once postulated, did we once used to breed with Neanderthals? Yes, we did. There were actually humans and Neanderthals that bred, mostly in Europe, um, but some Neanderthal DNA has made, it way, made its way back to Africa, which is presumably from interbreeding of Homo sapiens um, with uh, other Homo sapien groups in Africa. Um, but that's an amazing thing to, to be able to say that there was this extinct species and it was clearly a, a, an extinct a separate species from our own that we did interbreed with. Um, maybe there were characteristics that the Neanderthals had. They lived in a much colder environment than we, than or Homo sapiens did. Maybe there were some characteristics that we were able to get from them um, by this selective interbreeding. And that's an amazing thing that, that 20 years ago we would have thought was impossible. Do you think Neanderthals get a bad rap? They're kind of used as the punchline. Is that unfair? It is unfair. Um, and... There's lots of reasons for that. One is that the very first specimen that was recorded did seem to have been diseased. And so when you say, oh, it was a you know, bent over, knuckle dragging type of guy that lived in caves. Um, no, they were, they were the same height as us, if not smaller. Their brains were the same size as us. Um, they were able to do a lot of the um, social. Um, they used fire. Uh, they, I think, did some basic art. Um, they used tools. So all of that indicates that they were a complex hominin species um, that was not too dissimilar from us. How were they different from us? Well, we don't have evidence that they use language mm -hmm. or symbolic art. Um, we don't have evidence. Uh, they didn't survive as long as we did. Um, now, whether that was because we outcompeted them or we killed them or we don't really know. There was a change in environment that made it that they weren't able to live their life the same way that they were, um, we, that's still open questions. Um, but they were, they were a, a legitimate and, you know, well-surviving species. They lasted for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so th they were able to, to live um, alongside us for some time. You 
you mentioned getting the genetic material of different uh, species of humans or Neanderthals. How did you get that? How, how do we extract that f from where? So usually it's from bone and sometimes from teeth. So in every bone, there are cells that uh, help to um, rebuild the bone when we break a bone. So the bone is not a dead tissue, it's actually a living tissue. And so when you break a bone, the cells wake up and say, oh, I've got stuff to do, I need to fix this thing. So when an animal dies and its bone is buried, uh, those cells are trapped with inside the bone. And if it's not too long and it doesn't get too hot or too moist, those um, cells contained DNA and that DNA can survive um, for hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. Um, and so uh, we look at the DNA that's broken up into tiny little fragments and try to stick all them together. Um, and from that, they've been able to actually get the, the full genome um, of Neanderthals and Denisovans um, and hopefully more species. Um, and this, of course, goes with other um, extinct animals like the saber-tooth mm. cats. So they were um, sequenced very recently um, and there'll be, there'll be many others. Alistair, I've seen Jurassic Park and I think we all know how this ends. Why would we want to do this? There's lots of reasons that we might want to be able to bring back extinct species. Um, let's leave apart the difficulty for the moment. But we killed Neanderthals once. Well, maybe we <laughs> Do we, we really did. want to reinvigorate that war? Uh, well, we don't, we don't know, first of all, if we can. Um, I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of people arguing that we should bring back Neanderthals. Okay. Um, so we've sequenced, but we're not trying to recreate or rebuild. That's a different story, mm -hmm. yes. Um, so by getting the full DNA sequence, the, the, the genome, we can look at, oh, did they have blue eyes? What colour was their hair? How tall were they? Um, lots of things like that. We have the potential of revealing from their genes. Um, but bringing back a hominin species uh, brings up so many ridiculously difficult ethical questions. Um, it's hard enough thinking about that for modern humans, um, to our closest cousins, ch chimps, bonobos, um, gorillas. Um, and I, I don't think anyone is really postulating that they should do that. There's lots of other species that we might want to bring back. Mm. Um, so the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine is one example that's worth discussing um, because it lived up until the 20th century. We caused it ex its extinction um, up until about 3,000 years ago. It was present on mainland Australia as well. And so we think that uh, it would have played a very important role in the environment. It was a what we call a, a middle-sized or a meso-predator um, that was able to uh, hunt smaller animals, smaller vertebrates. Um, and when it went extinct, it perhaps left a hole in the... Um, environmental uh, niches that um, was perhaps filled by dingoes or perhaps that was one of the reasons that the thylacine went extinct. Mm. Um, but it also is probably a reason why cats and foxes are so successful in the modern environment because they don't have um, the competitors of animals slightly larger than them that would outcompete them. future world for us you know imagine the world in say 50 or 100 years where we've just stopped doing uh this kind of deep research what happens what do we lose 
I think in many ways we lose our place in nature. Being able to know the things that I was talking about before, about um, our extinct relatives, um, how we are a small branch on a much larger tree. I think not knowing that or not knowing more about that will diminish our understanding of how we are a single species. We are the most populous, um, account for the most biomass of any animal in the world. Um, but if we could give ourselves a little bit more humility and say, well, yes, we are only one species, but look at the destruction we can cause, um, that should really give pause to the, the, um, you know, the level of habitat um, modification that we have done and we will continue to do. Does that deep research into humans' history but also the, the history of you know, flora and fauna of, of the world, will that also tell us something about where we're going? Can we use anything from our past to predict our future? I think we can. Um, we should be finding better ways of uh, using or modifying the environment to feed the billions of people that are here that are nowhere near as destructive or disruptive to natural environments. So if we could find ways of um, integrating, say, using kangaroos as a, as a food source that is not as um, environmentally destructive as cattle and sheep, that would be fantastic. Um, and that may actually... Uh, support the biodiversity of the modern Australian environment rather than make a monoculture of introduced grasses that are only fed on by introduced animals. If we can use uh, native grasses, native trees and native animals, uh, native mammals, um, then we may get back to what was more like our environment 50,000 years ago. And that that should be something that we would really um, should strive for, um, which is a better integration of humans into uh, the natural environment. Mm, and bending it to our will. Yes. Are humans still evolving? Uh, very little, very little. So um, if we think about uh, evolution, evolution is uh, on the whole by natural selection. And so natural selection says... This guy, this individual, this population has a characteristic that enables it to have more kids than this one over here. And so they have more kids uh, and they contribute more to the next population uh, and the next generation. So if for humans to evolve, um, we know it's often discussed, will we lose our little toe? Will we lose our, our appendix? Mm. It would have to be that those people who have a little toe have fewer kids mm. than those people that do have a little toe mm. and that's not likely to be the case. Um, that's not to say that there's no selection pressures on humans at all because we are still uh, fighting um, infectious diseases. Uh, we still have um, other environmental um, problems like, you know, you would have to be able to survive in our modified environment, which has different chemicals, um, allergens, mm. uh, other poisons that uh, we didn't we didn't see when we were earlier. So all of those things are still going to be selection pressures on us. Um, but in terms of changing our, uh, you know, our bodies in many ways, or even our brains, it's unlikely to be natural selection has happened. Um, what has mostly happened over the last maybe 100,000 years is cultural evolution. So the changes in the way that humans uh, deal with the environment uh, and are able to um, invent new things, find new ways of doing it. And that's the obviously the, the one of the key 
uh, characteristics of modern humans is that their brain is uh, sufficiently complex and good at problem solving that we can in many ways bypass the natural selection aspect mm. and go on to um, cult- have cultural evolution. Of what exists today... What will be the dinosaurs of the future? What could survive? And I know it's not just necessarily the most interesting animals, but what will die in conditions that will preserve it well enough? So human beings, whatever we are in a million years, will find it and go, ah, look at that strange creature. Well, most the type of animals that are around now that would create the best fossil records, well, shells from mm-hmm. um uh, from sea animals or snails, um, large boned animals. Um, we have a good fossil record for things like giant whales mm. um, because they have big bones that um, when they're covered in sediment and they fossilise, they last for a very long time. Elephants, rhinos, mm. um, anything large um, and anything with hard parts. So teeth are often the best thing. So we know much more about animals and their teeth mm. than we do any other part of their body because they are the hardest um, parts of the body. If you look at everything you've learned from the hominids that you've studied from ten thousands, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of years ago, are there any life lessons that you've taken from the way they organise, the way they live, that you think is still applicable for us today? I think it's fairly clear that we're a very social species. Uh, and that has been the case for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, and that we can't live by ourselves. And so um, in times like the recent isolation, we really feel that uh, very personally in that we can't um, live... I mean, we could find enough food perhaps by ourselves, but most hunter-gatherer societies, they're built on cooperation. Mm. So by by some hunting, some gathering, some looking after kids, some making home, fire, etc. Um, we are definitely a, a very social species and that's not the case for all animals out there. And so recognising that as a society and making sure that um, our political systems and our social systems uh, are able to support that, I think is very important. That mm, we are wired that way. There's yeah. research that seems to suggest that the feeling that we have of hunger, uh, the, the feeling that we have um, when we experience loneliness is as intense as a physical hunger. It's, it has the same pressure on the body and it seems like in some ways we've been trying to deny that part of humanity and perhaps that's, some, that's something that COVID has revealed is this is how we are wired. Yeah, I think so. And um, it's only really fairly recently in modern society, I was in maybe a few thousand years, that um, I think loneliness has been a a potential problem because otherwise if you're living then you were pretty much in a society um, and so we're not we're not used to being able to deal with that in any reasonable way. Alistair Evans thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Some pretty fascinating food for thought there. Next time we'll hear from experts on what we need to learn from First Nations cultures about discovering and preserving our history. I will catch you next time on What Happens Next. <laughs>